мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. It's pretty safe to say that Russian organized crime plays an outsized role in how people understand modern Russia. The Russian mafia serves as a cultural exoticism, an object of moral panic, and an analytical lens to understand Putin, the mafia Don, and his state, the mafia state. What is the history and ins and outs of Russian organized crime? Is Russia really a mafia state? How does organized crime fit within the vacuums of the modern state more generally? And what's its role in the global flows of capital? There's no better person to turn to for some answers than Mark Galliotti. Mark Galliotti is a senior researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and an expert and prolific author on transnational crime and the Russian security services. He runs the blog In Moscow Shadows and is the author of several books. His new book is The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, published by Yale University Press. Here's Mark Galliotti. So you have this new book, Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, and it does a really deep dive into the history and the transformation and the present-day configuration of Russian organized crime. So I thought we'd start just by having you define what is organized crime. Which is one of those deceptively simple questions about which much ink has been spilled and whole books written. Um, I mean, from my point of view, essentially, organized crime is a non-political long-term conspiracy by a group of people operating in close social interaction to commit crimes. Now, there are other definitions which include a lot more bells and whistles, particularly driven by the fact that in some countries... It's something that you then have to demonstrate in the courts. But that's basically it. I mean, and I think this is one of the one of the problems with Russia, is actually distinguishing what we can call organized crime from, say, gangs of officials benefiting corruptly from their position. Um, and and I mean, it's 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 a difficult one. And, I, and to an extent, I kind of rely on the same as the, the sort of the famous judge's definition of pornography, which is where well, you know it when you see it. Um, but in some ways, I mean, I very much, because otherwise we end up debasing the whole, you know, oh, Russia, I know we're going to come on to, you know, is Russia ma a mafia state, but, you know, everyone gets called mafias and such like. Um, and then if it, if it means everything, then it means nothing. So essentially, I mean, we are talking about people who are not necessarily full-time criminals, but, you know, people who are organized for the purpose of committing crimes generally from outside of the kind of the political elites and they're not doing it you might say through their positions of power 
um, and who do so on a periodic basis. It's not just simply a one-off or a two-off. It's something that they do periodically. Now, the definition of organized crime, does it also relate to how it's defined legally? And how does... So I guess the question is, how much is the definition of or our understanding of organized crime defined through how the law is structured and defining what that organized crime is? And how is it more of a, a cultural folklore of understanding organized crime? Well, I think in some ways, I think it, the answer is neither, but it's closer to the former. I mean, the legal definition is important, but on the other hand, given that legal definitions vary from time to time and from place to place. Um, in a way, one has to step beyond that to try and find some common denominator way of defining it. Because otherwise, I mean, let's just be perfectly honest, there are things that were crimes under the Soviet era and are routine activities today, such as obviously speculation, in other words, um, private economic activity. But also this business of, of what, what the what is generally regarded by society as criminal is also problematic because, I mean, I, I track back um, looking at, for example, 19th century rural crime and particularly the horse thieves. Now, the horse thieves were obviously criminals as far as the state was concerned and very, very serious criminals as far as the peasants were concerned, given that uh, you know the theft of a horse could mean literally life or death for a village. Um, except, of course, when the horse thieves are offering to sell you a, a knocked-off horse, at which point suddenly they, they, they become great boons. But conversely, one, one could look at the very, very widespread activities of poaching and uh, wood thievery. Again, illegal as far as the state was concerned, absolutely acceptable within the peasants' moral economy, because they quite realistically and rightly said, well, look, you know, the, the state and the landlord, they've got more forests than they know what to do with. Um, so again, I, I mean, I think one, one has to, and in, in many ways, this is part of what I think one of the interesting aspects of looking at criminality, is, is to look at, you might say, not only how the state's laws change, but precisely that gap between public concepts of criminality, organized and otherwise, and the state's concept of criminality, because that, that, that vacuum is a really important one because it sucks in so many other issues. Yeah, I'm reminded of, I just uh, listened to a, a podcast about uh, organized crime in, um, in Rhode Island in Providence. And what's interesting about the, the way these, these figures, these organized crime you know, bosses uh, are imagined. They're kind of imagined in the among some of the public as folk heroes, as kind of guys who took care of the community, even though they did it through community, you know, criminal means and shaking people down. So it, it's I always find that the public perception of what these guys are, or what organized crime is, and according to a community, a very interesting one. And it's let's be honest, it's something that smart gangsters always seek to. Um, actually build upon this notion that they are Robin Hoods. I mean, in, in practice, almost invariably, organized crime groupings prey upon their own communities. But nonetheless, it's really important to actually get the community to think of you, even if you're bad, at least better than the state, better than the alternatives. And I think this, again, going, going back to, to the 19th century, when, when Russia was in some ways a very interesting kind of Wild Westy sort of space, um, however much you're horrified by these organized gangs of horse thieves, nonetheless, actually having one of those gangs settle in your village or close to your village 
was a risk, but it was also actually a massive opportunity because they would want to sort of fritter away their uh, money on vodka, women and song. Um, it meant that you had a chance to get first dibs on stolen horses. And, you know, basically as part of the deal, they would not um, steal your horses. So no one was necessarily under any illusions. The, these were not dashing Robin Hoods in, in, in green tights. But on the other hand, if you are living in a pretty extreme environment in which actually you have to take every opportunity, use every margin for the survival of your community, then if need be, you'll make a deal with these people. So talk a bit about this history of organized crime in Russia. You've already mentioned the horse, horse thieves, which are a major, some books have been written about the role and the importance of horse thievery and how it was one of the worst crimes that could, that and arson were the two major crimes in, in villages. Um, so how did organized crime develop from, from in Russia? Well, it's interesting because organized crime tends to be a flip side of organized society. I mean, if one looks in, in Europe, for example, you know, what we would really think of as organized crime largely disappears with the fall of the Roman Empire and only genuinely sort of re-emerges with the Renaissance and particularly in Italy and Holland, its cradles. So likewise, in a way, organized crime, for it to be a meaningful concept, relies on there being a certain amount of, of state activity. And if we sort of track it back, I mean, I kind of basically put it with Van Kakein, the sort of much storied 18th century gangster turned informant and thief taker turned gangster again. Not least because the fascinating thing is that actually Russian popular literature really starts um, with, 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 with Vanka's story. But particularly, I, th I think what we see is in, in, in the 19th century, where in some ways two potential tracks emerge, each of which could have evolved into the kind of criminal subculture that, that eventually became dominant, but one of which turned out to be, to be a dead end. That one was precisely rural crime and the organization of, of the horse thieves, um, who had to be organized, firstly, because the peasants and the landlords would obviously resist. And secondly, because it's a little bit like the same way as you can't steal a car from someone's drive, just go round the corner and try and sell it to a person there. It'll very, very quickly be noticed. For likewise, the same way as cars then get, you know, sometimes they, they, they get to taken to chop shops and modified so that they're not identifiable, or else they get taken to a, a different city, a different state, even a different country. Well, so too with horses. So you had this, this fascinating, really quite complex shadow economy emerge, whereby stolen horses were traded um, around the country often actually to the state, because the state was one of the biggest buyers of, of, of mass horses. Um, but anyway, so, so you actually had really quite primitive gangs actually being part of a surprisingly complex underground economy. However, that, that, that world was basically going to die with World War I and the Russian Civil War, not least because you know, the, the state, um, so desperate was it for horses, essentially imposed monopoly control over it. The other track took place in the cities, and particularly was a product of the strikingly fast urbanization and the very tough conditions of that urbanization in the latter half of the 19th century. And you have the rise of these very, very grim slums in the major cities, the Yami, the pits, um, such as Hitrovka in, in, in Moscow, Haymarket in St. Petersburg. And there, what we saw is, again, not, not organized criminality 
as a structure or structures so much as as a subculture. Um, this was definitely sort of an outsider, and in this respect, it's it not that unfamiliar uh, in broad terms to the kind of criminal subcultures that you would get in the, the stews of Dickensian London, um, or, or, or in you know, France and, and Germany and so forth. Um, but very definitely a sort of a, the, the beginning of an emergence of, of, of a subculture with its own norms, its own slang, its own hierarchies, you know, certain, certain professions being regarded as more elite than, than others, with, with, with um, fraudsters at the, at the very top of the social hierarchy, because A, they tended to sort of have a, a good front in the sense that they often had to look respectable, but also because precisely they were largely defrauding the rich and the powerful, and therefore there was a sort of social cachet. Um, and that's where it really emerged from. So do you place the development of, or the history of organized crime within the broader history of uh, modernization of society in terms of like urbanization, the different changes of the economy, and the, the particular configurations of state and governance, in the sense that these criminal subcultures are arising within a very turbulent period of rapid change. And in some ways, they're filling in the vacuums of the lack of any state governance or control or institutions. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the fascinating things that we, if we means precisely the sort of the respectable legal upper world society, we get to define our own mafias. We get to precisely by, by the issues that we, we neglect, the issues that we fail to do adequately, the issues where we actually choose to regulate in direct contradiction to the popular or community moral economies. In a way, we precisely we create those gaps and voids that get filled by organized crime. I mean, one of my I have a very long term project, which is essentially rooted in massive hubris on my part, which is to write a history of organized crime everywhere. Um, and, and very much the, the the central theme of that is precisely that, that organized crime is the, the dark shadow to organized society. And it's exactly as societies get organized that so too do their gangsters. And as society structures itself, so too does it in effect structure the underworld. Now, it's, it's often claimed by both revolutionaries and criminals that uh, the prison is a university, right? This is a, way, a place where both the revolutionary and the criminal kind of hone their craft, make connections, develop as in their various professions, um, and, you know, some of the histories that have been written, say, about the Russian revolutionary movement have been very good in showing the, the, the lines between revolutionary activity and criminality are quite blurred, particularly after 1905 with the wave of so-called expropriations. Of, you know, Stalin carried them out, but all of the revolutionary parties did, whether they're Bolshevik, SRs, etc. Um, how does – so my first question is – what role does the the prison play in in honing Russian organized crime, particularly in the Soviet period and the Gulag? Very important. Um, I mean, clearly, even before Stalin's era, we'd seen this. I mean, and the very fact that actually within in, in Fenya, in in the sort of the, the criminal language, um, academia was a word used for prison. Um, though it's worth mentioning that that means prison as in a building, whereas most people are in prison camps, you know, sort of labor camps. Um, and, and this is, after all, where you have two things. One is a small world. 
um, that actually, you know, that the, 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 the prison system rep represents, uh, you know, a, a microcosmic society that is precisely encapsulated. And, and the guards and the authorities are all outsiders, invaders, shall we say. And the prisoners get to create their own subcultures. Um, and, and secondly, that this is where you actually have criminal in, in a certain critical mass and precisely brought from all around the country. I mean, this is an important point. One of the reasons why organized crime develops not just its own slang, but also its visual slang, shall we say, of the tattoos that are such. I mean, obviously, anyone who watches gangster TV and films knows about Russian tattoos. Um, but, you know, the re one of the reasons for that, apart from just the fact that it was it was a very visual way of saying I'm outside of your bourgeois mainstream society um but was also because that became a language that was common across them even in a time when russian was was still a very fragmented language and full of dialects but of course with the gulags you had a, a massive expansion in the prison population most of whom of course were not what we would seriously think of as criminals let alone organized crime they were victims of collectivization, they were victims of purge, they were victims of just simply the insatiable desire for what was in effect slave labor. But the point is, at the same time, you did have, a, you know, obviously more criminals being, being thrown in behind barbed wire at the same time. But you also had the Stalinist state faced with a dilemma. The gulags were, first and foremost, in my opinion, a political instrument to shatter any form of actual or potential resistance. But they increasingly acquired a secondary role as, a, as an economic instrument, as I said, basically slave labor. At a point when it, the Soviet industrialization seemed to require mass inputs of labor. It wasn't yet at the point where it needed skilled craft, so much as just simply lots of warm bodies to lay railway tracks and chop down trees and dig coal. Now, in that context, you obviously want to manage your millions strong population of, of Zeks, of prisoners, as cheaply and as effectively as possible. And, and Stalin, who absolutely had had his whole you know, long tradition of having worked with gangsters, he and his system, again, we mustn't just make it just about him, um, clearly what they turned to were the, the, the professional thieves um, as trustees in order to actually manage the Gulag population. Um, because after all, no one really wanted to be a prison guard and be stuck out in these sort of miserable conditions on, on the, in the far north or Siberia or whatever. Um, and, and they were offered an easier quality of life, which, given the murderous conditions of the gulags, I mean, even just simply means, as anyone who's read there, Ivan Denisovich, you know, just a little, a few, a few, a little bit more fat in your diet could well mean the difference between life and death, and also the opportunity to bully and dominate everyone else around you. And while the traditional code of the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world, very much um, forbade any kind of collaboration with the authorities, nonetheless, there was a minority who were willing to accept this deal, uh, and they became sort of outsiders, they became scabs, suki, bitches, as far as the traditionalists were concerned. But nonetheless, they became absolutely central to the management of the gulags. And over time, this has become more and more institutionalized to the point where these were not just simply trustees sitting inside the, the zone, but they could actually end up wearing uniforms or even be running camps. Um, so, so very much you actually had the, the split within, a split within this traditional world. But two other things, because of the sort of the, the critical mass, I think, within the camps were absolutely crucial. 
One is that the, the overall code began to need a, a, a cast of people who would be the, the judges, the mediators, the high priests of the Vorovskoy Mir. And this is the Voriva Zakonia, the th literally thieves within the law, but best translated, I would say, as thieves within the code, who were a kind of an, an authority figure. They, they were not necessarily gang leaders, but they were figures of, shall I say, sort of cultural legitimacy who were precisely able to resolve disputes and do those things. But the second thing is, again, I think I'd really want to stress the extent to which um, this is a population that is constantly in movement. Um, I mean, you, you've covered this already, you know, the sort of the, the ETAP movements um, of, of prisoners from camp to camp through transit camps and so forth, as the you know overcrowding here, need for more labor there, whatever. And what this means is, again, you, you, you really do have the creation of this global, well, say global, nationwide criminal culture and, and a criminal language and so forth, but also criminal communication channels um, by word of mouth, by small pieces of paper or whatever that were moved around by prisoners. So because of, of the very kind of protean nature of the Gulag population, you actually have uh, a, a much, much more coherent criminal culture, even if currently sort of experiencing this schism, um, and, and, and the rise of the Vorniva Zakonia as the sort of the nodes of authority within it, it's simply because of, of, of the, the mass of this population. Yeah, and I think it's also important to point out too that the Gulag system also released thousands of people every year. So you have this release of these elements back into society. And of course, the biggest release is right after Stalin's death, where a lot of, uh, in, in very large numbers and hundreds of thousands of, of Gulag prisoners are released. And they're, of course, um, are stigmatized because of their, their, their time in the Gulag. But also they've been, you know, conditioned, whether they were criminals or not, in this culture of the thief and this gets translated back to, you know, normal Soviet society. So what is this thief's life that occurs, say, after Stalin's death, where the underworld kind of rises to the level of popular culture? Quite. Well, first of all, you've got to understand that right before Stalin's death, um, there is this period of the sort of the Gulag Wars, the Bitch Wars, call them what you will, which really rip through the, the, the Gulag system. Um, the, the, the Cold War between the traditionalists and the collaborators within the Vorovskoy Mir could survive so long as the collaborators were relatively few and didn't try to impose their will on, on the um, traditionalists. However, after World War II, you have uh, an influx of um, criminals who had been conscripted into the military and then returned to the gulags, as well as some who volunteered to fight. And they were doing so out of kind of loamy patriotism. But still, as soon, at the moment they, they, they pick up a gun and put on a uniform, as far as the traditionalists were concerned, they became scabs. And you also had the, this extraordinary and horrific spectacle of prisoners of war, Soviet prisoners of war, who, because they had had the temerity to allow themselves to be captured rather than fighting to the death, were literally liberated from Nazi concentration camps, put under guard on trains, and after a very brief and brutal filtration process, dumped into, into gulags. But again, because the, 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 the Voyenschina, the soldiery, 
was considered by the traditionalists to be again lackeys of the state so effectively they also got lumped with the collaborators and, and therefore suddenly you, you know that this this old cold war was no longer viable there were too many collaborators for the traditionalists to ignore um and and this well, there's also a variety of other reasons but for the sake of speed, I'll just move straight on. This this led to this this very very brutal, um, you know, internal conflict within the Gulag system, um, one that was fought by sort of you know mob killings and individual knifings in the night. And at first, the state obviously didn't want this to happen because it was destabilizing the Gulags. But then, when it realised it couldn't really stop it, it put its weight behind the collaborators. Um, there's all kind of ways that, after all, you you can tilt the balance, not least giving them jobs like barber and cook which means access to sharp metal implements very useful in in this kind of conflict and what this meant was that basically the the, the collaborators won even at the cost of again pretty much helping contribute to the economic dysfunction of the gulags which is the main reason rather than intrinsic niceness why stalin's heirs including beria wanted to open them up but yeah it meant that the the, the the criminal culture that was then unleashed onto the rest of the soviet union was one that had been dominated by people who had combined the old code with its very strong sense of basically everyone who is outside our culture is prey it's worth mentioning within fenya the word ludi people is reserved only for fellow thieves Everyone else, they're, they're, they're a mujik or a fryer, but anyway, they are not people. Um, anyway, that with the sense that, on the other hand, collaboration with the authorities can be useful as long as it's in your benefit. And they go out and they essentially, again, in, in a, another decade full of low-level underworld conflicts, colonize the rest of the Soviet underworld. So at the very time when, in a way, the, the gulag is being brought into mainstream, just by the fact that all the millions of other poor individuals who've been dragged through it were then being released and bringing with them the language, the values, the songs uh, of the gulag, you also actually had this new underworld community who were sitting there thinking, hmm, well, we, we're, we're fine still being criminals, but we have understood that the real way to prosperity and security is not to set yourself up against the state and its agents, but to try and work with them. Is this also recognized from the other side of the state in the sense that, you know, this is a force that we can't fully eradicate and possibly a force that we can utilize since there's already a history of this within the camps? Um, do you, do you, have you seen any collaboration or at least an instrumental relationship between these two forces within the Soviet period? Interestingly enough, not on, on much of a scale. Actually, if anything, the authorities were really were rather horrified by, by what had happened. And I mean, they hadn't really thought through the, the cultural implications of releasing millions of, of Zex out into the mainstream, particularly when, you know, some of them are tattooed thieves and thus outsiders, but, but most of them are someone's brother, sister, father or child. Um, we saw a few cases, particularly, for example, those criminals who, because of their location and profession, came into contact with foreigners, were clearly ones that the, the KGB regarded as, as useful sort of assets and sources of information. Um, but that's a small minority. On the whole, what we actually do have is, is a sort of a rising tide of concern within the Interior Ministry and elsewhere 
firstly about what this is meaning for society as a whole, but secondly, particularly as we come into the 1970s, the Brezhnev era really begins to sort of reach its, its, its proper um, pitch of stagnation and, and corruption within the party becomes more and more of, a, of an issue. That's where you really see the alliance. It's not the state qua state, it's state actors who are looking for ways of, in effect, turning their position into money and goods and comfort. Because does, so does organized crime develop by the 1970s and even into the early 80s and into more of controlling the black market and, and the gray economy in the Soviet Union? Well, this is a fascinating thing. Controlling, not so much. Facilitating. Um, in, in some ways, the way I think of it is, and frankly, this applies us with different labels today, but certainly in, in Soviet times, you had three, shall I say, nexi of criminal power. You had organized crime the Bavori. You had the black marketeers, or the informal economy sort of barons, who were sometimes just your little sort of petty local speculator, but actually could often become, you know, but really be, be powerful figures who were running whole factories and such like. And then, of course, you had the corrupt figures within the party. And it was actually the latter two who were the most important. Um, the, the black marketeers had money, and obviously the officials had power. But the point is, they had trouble interacting directly with each other often. And organized crime much, very much emerged, I think, as, as the kind of connective tissue between the two. It, it, it reached a deal for essentially taxing the, under, the, the underground economy in return for protection. But that basically meant protection as in, we'll, we'll leave you alone. Um, but, but still, when it, when it came down to it, it was the other two that, that actually had, had the real strength. It was only later on, really with the collapse of the Soviet system, that briefly this, this pyramid was inverted. Um, but but, but, but organised crime has to sort of basically remain within the shadows for the 70s and, and early 80s. And I think this, this is one of the reasons why it's an area that has been so dramatically understudied. Um, you, know, you, you, you have some émigré writers like, like Chalidze who writes about it. And to our shame, I think it's fair to say that on the whole, Western scholarship didn't really take it seriously, didn't really think that you could have organized crime within what was in effect a police state, and therefore essentially tap, you know, sort of patted the emigres on, on the head, said, oh, it's a really interesting book, and moved on. Um, what became clear is actually the extent to which precisely it, it was very much, it was, in, it was in the roof areas and in the wainscoting um, but nonetheless, it was there, and therefore it was ready to emerge when circumstances changed. Yeah, the, the understudied aspect of, uh, of organized crime in Russia in general, but also in the Soviet period in particular, um, it, I mean, I could see in your footnotes, there just isn't a lot of previous studies to tap on. You have to kind of cobble together... Um, you know, sources from a general, general histories of crime and, and other documents. Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting thing that, I mean, for a variety of reasons, it, it just wasn't wasn't really studied. I mean, within the Soviet Union as a whole, there, there was a, a certain taboo to even admitting that it could possibly exist. You had people like Gurov, who was actually a, sort of a scholar and a police officer, very much pushing this this line, and, and really in, until the 80s, was actually being slapped back and being told by his superiors, no, 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 this, this, there is no such thing as organized crime in the Soviet Union. Actually, in, in, in a fascinating way, a little bit like uh, Hoover, his claims that there is no mafia in the United States. And 
to an extent for similar reasons. I mean, because then it, it was a distraction from what they regarded as as, as a really important business. Um, and also, again, because it was very sort of low low level and out of scene, most, for most Russians, most Soviet citizens, sorry, they did not really encounter organized crime. This was an interesting thing. In, in the gulags, they had encountered organized crime in this essentially kind of predatory role, more often than not. Because whether you were a collaborator or a traditionalist, um, you, know, you, you regarded the, the ordinary prisoners as, as prey. Um, but then when you came out into, into, as it were, the real world, you would not really encounter the gangsters. Because the gangsters were there, but they were largely operating in relationships with the underworld economy and, 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 and such like. So it's not even as if one can look to sort of ethnographic studies of, of ordinary Soviet life in a way that, for example, one can read a lot about the sort of early New York mafia just simply by reading the histories of members, you know, people who came and were living in Little Italy in New York and such like, um, because they were visible. They were there on the streets. Everyone knew who they were. That's not the way it was in Soviet times. So it's therefore it's hard for, for Soviets to really see what's going on. Doubly hard, therefore, for any Westerners who might want to try to, because technically speaking, it didn't exist. And therefore, even when we have, you know, there was that brief period when one could actually access fairly sort of broadly um, interior ministry files and so forth. And, and the fascinating thing there is, is the absolute, well, dearth on the surface. Now, clearly, often you have reports which are talking about organized crime, but you can see the, the police officers and the police commands carefully working out how they can report what's happening without calling it organized crime. You know, maybe you'll have kind of gangs of hooligans who turn out to be, you know, 30-something-year-old hooligans who are not actually sort of kicking over um, dustbins or whatever, but involved in more serious activities. But again, you know, it, there, was this, there was this sort of official line, and as ever, that distorted the record-keeping. Now, one of, one of the things in, in, in some of the writings of, of organized crime and criminality and gangs with the collapse of the Soviet Union it seems to a lot of it deals with in some of the more interesting ones uh, i think deals with how street gangs and other forms of criminality and criminal networks kind of filled the vacuum of a community of sorts i mean here i'm thinking of svetlana stevenson's book on on gangs and then the other uh, other type of literature points to um the role of of organized crime and gangsters and mafia in the development of Russian capitalism. Um, and I, I find this latter one, by both of them are very interesting for their own reasons and they're certainly connected, but it seems that in, in some respects, the, the, the criminality in the organized crime that comes out of the shadows in the late eighties. And of course, you know, comes to the surface in, in the 1990s kind of almost function as a, you know, the primitive accumulation for development of Russian capitalism. So what what is the relationship between organized crime and these first years of, you know, Russian capitalism in the 1990s? Well, of course, this is the, the classic Charles Tilly line, which is sort of state building um, and organized crime having much, much more in common than, than, than we might like to feel. Um, but again, I think that the 1990s was, was this uh, you know, fascinating and horrifying period in so many ways. And exactly, for, and it was a period in which, for a while, as it were, the gangsters were crucial stakeholders, and therefore, because political and economic structures, and not just structures but concepts, were being defined at that point, 
they got to play a role in, in defining them also for the future. But in terms of how it works, I mean, actually, you mentioned Svetlana Stevenson. I mean, let, let me sort of bring in two, two more, of, in some ways, kind of the, the holy trinity of, of scholars who worked on this. Vadim Volkov and his concept of violent entrepreneurs, and Federico Varese with his um, The Russian Mafia, looking at using sort of the, the theories of Diego Gambetta elaborated for the Sicilian Mafia, in which he looks at a mafia particularly as a non-state provider of protection. Because bring these, bring these together, I mean, what you had is with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, and perhaps more importantly, the collapse of the Communist Party um, as a sort of a, you know, a dominant structure, you suddenly had a party elite that no longer had power. Or rather, it, to hold on to power, it needed to find new ways of doing so. It needed to be able to win elections or otherwise control the people who were winning elections. And they were too busy and often not able to provide the, the traditional protection for the rich, but nonetheless not really muscular, um, underground economy uh, millionaires. And so for a brief while, both were vulnerable to and both needed the services of organized crime more than vice versa. So as I said, you, you actually had this right. And, and, and what one of the key things that comes out of, of Svetlana Stevenson's work on gangs is precisely the extent to which youth gangs, which in the past would, would coalesce, form, have their time in the sun, and then very quickly um, fall apart as individuals get arrested or get girlfriends or get jobs or whatever. In this period, you actually have a certain number of them that in part because they're sort of captured or mentored or whatever by older figures, take their muscle and monetize it and turn it into territorial control and territorial economic control. And this is precisely what, what Vadim Volkov talks about, his violent entrepreneurs. It's actually you know, how people essentially convert the capacity to use violence in an environment where there are not the controls on that to turn that into an economic asset. So, so this is what this is how, in a way, gangsters at this time when basically everything was up for grabs. If you had connections, cash, and muscle, or you know, some distribution amongst those, you could buy property, buy companies, buy politicians. Well, the gangsters have all three of those. But it also links in, I mean, Federico Varese's point about non-state providers of protection. This is a time in which the state basically fell apart. Um, I, I mean, you know, anyone who's been in Russia through the 1990s sort of, you know, experienced that sense where, you know, a small handful were becoming ultra rich and in the process developing their own massive private security armies. Whereas for the 99 point whatever percent, this is a time of extreme, not just economic, but also physical precariousness of existence. Well, organized crime, again, it can use its muscle to provide you that protection. And what happens is protection starts as a, as a negative thing. Give me money and I won't break your kneecaps. It turns into a, a slightly more expansive thing. Give me money and I'll make sure no one else breaks your kneecaps. And then extends into the broader forms of protection that are actually unnecessary for a capitalist economy. Give me money and I'll make sure that that contract is enforced. Give me money and I'll make sure that person who owes you money actually pays it back. So in this respect, again, we, we go back to this very early point that you made about organized crime and, and the voids and vacuums left in upper world society. Well, at that point, when, when upper world society was in such terrible state, there were so many gaping voids. Organized crime, in part, 
just automatically and in part because they, they spotted an opportunity filled them and became in some cases not just the, the predators but the service providers the goods providers the providers of protection yeah this is the also the other thing in, in going back to what you were saying about the role of organized crime in say the black market economy and its relationships to various state actors once the economic distribution network collapses with the Soviet Union, do does organized crime, because of its vast networks, also fill the gap in just basic economic distribution? Yes. I mean, often not very well. I mean, we've got to realize that most gangsters are not especially smart. And most gangsters are not necessarily good business people. Um, you know, so, so much of the time it fails. There is a danger we otherwise, we, we have a tendency to assume based on the handful of really successful ones, the, the, the rest are like that. But yes, I mean, again, this is the kind of era in which, I say, smuggling networks suddenly became distribution networks. Um, and the, the most effective ones were really quite successful. I remember talking to a, a Western businessman who um, arranged for his, uh, his distribution of his imported goods through a company that was well known to be run by the Chechens. Um, and, and he was perfectly well aware of that. But what I had assumed originally was that he did that because, because the Chechens came on to him and said, look, either you use our company or all your goods will, you know, you, you will, will get lost or your warehouses will catch fire. But it's not. It actually turned out, he said, the reason I do that is, first of all, yes, no one boosts any stock from my, my shipments because no one's going to mess with the Chechens. But also, the goods arrive on time for the price agreed. So, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I mean, in some cases, actually, the gangsters proved to be good business people. And this is why, I mean, you know, anyway, your, your original question, which, like most of your questions, I have distorted to kind of ramble off into directions I want to take. But in terms of the development of capitalism, what you absolutely get through the 1990s, I would suggest, is, 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 a, is a bifurcation. You have sort of tattooed gangsters who find themselves in an unexpected position and make the best of it and make whatever opportunities they can and, and you know enjoy the fact that the police force is in ruins but then you also have a new generation this is the ones who tend to be known as authority authorities who actually turn out to be decent business people as well and therefore in a way they want to to move out of being outlaws and into being insiders um, and because they're in a position to basically help define the new new model Russian capitalism, because they are in a, in, a, in a year zero moment, where in some ways everyone has skeletons dating back to before 1991. No one is what in sort of spook terms would be a clean skin. Um, in a way, being a gangster, is that really any worse than being a former Communist Party member or, or a member of the KGB? Everyone is busy reinventing themselves. But the point is, we, we see this in a lot of societies. The big question is, are you finding yourself in a position in which, in order to reinvent yourself, you have to break your links with your criminal past? And the idea ought to be, yes. I mean, I think this is how you actually, this is how you, you slowly move away from an organized crime-saturated society, is you, you have to accept that at least for one generation, you're going to have to allow people to basically buy themselves into, into legitimacy, but at the cost of, of, of breaking those links. In Russia, that didn't happen. In Russia, I think precisely because everyone is, is, is equally dirty in one form or another, to be blunt. 
They didn't have to do so. And so if you look at today's generation, I'm not talking about the oligarchs at the very top of the system who, anyway, they don't have to be involved with organized crime because they can make far more money just by being involved with Putin. But, you know, a lot of other people, you, you see these people with these portfolios of interest ranging from the absolutely legitimate through the grey, you know, um, perfectly straightforward high street stores that also happen to be used as fronts for counterfeit, for example, through to the absolutely illegitimate, the heroin trafficking, the people smuggling and so forth. But the point is, they never had to make a choice. They never had to decide to be one or the other. They can be all of them. You know, given this, it really also uh, creates um, the Russian entrepreneurial or even bourgeois class a particular character that's that's different than perhaps other places and in other historical periods because at the same time you know Russia's ruling class has been decimated so many times in the 20th century that it's really kind of re rebirthing itself in many respects so do you think that this 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 is a transitionary phase where over a generation or two this the children of this you know gray elite that borders criminality and official business uh, will move more into the official business realm? I mean, the honest answer is I hope so. And I am I am still unfashionably optimistic about Russia. Um, however, this is not something that one can just simply sit back and say, oh, it's a, it, it, it's a growth pang issue. I mean, again, if, if one looks at the kind of the, the way the robber barons era ended in the United States, it ended because there were institutions and laws and structures in to keep them in check after a certain point. If one looks at Italy, which admittedly has not, as it were, finished the job, but nonetheless has made substantial progress in taming organised crime. But that happened really because the murders of a couple of magistrates, Falcone and Borsellino, galvanised a population which had had enough and forced their political masters, who are, you know, however imperfectly were elected through democratic means, to unleash police forces and magistracies that wanted to do their job. So it, it, it's harder when you haven't got those structures of law-based states through which to operate. But, I mean, I think the thing that I, I, I do feel is, I mean, first of all, relatively unusually for Western scholars, you know, I, I talk to cops and I talk to other people within this establishment. And I must admit, I, I have definitely felt... And, and this is maybe just me sort of kidding myself, but I, I do feel there has been an evolution and, and the new younger generation of cops. I'm not saying they're as clean as clean can be, but nonetheless, the, again, the moral economy has shifted. They have a much clearer sense of what is what makes a bad cop. It's not straightforward. It's not a neat binary that if you take a bribe, you're a bad cop. But nonetheless, I mean, in a way, whereas I do feel that in the 1990s, you, you could literally get away with murder quite easily. Um, now it's not so much clear, but also I get a sense amongst them and amongst sort of again magistrates that they want to do the job, a certain degree of frustration, and likewise, I mean I think actually for the economic elite who you might say rose through the murkiest of of, of roads, but nonetheless they now want the security of a law-based state. I mean, you know, the, the, the traditional route is the sort of the mafia don does not want his son to succeed him. He wants his son to become, you know, a lawyer or a dentist um, or even an accountant. But that's because, in a way, that's usually within the context of a situation in which, you know, the police are after you and the FBI are tapping your phone and such like. 
Now, in Russia, it's not so much that you worry what the state's going to do to you, because you know, most people have their, their krisha, their protection. It is that actually you are fully aware of the precariousness, that even the richest Russian is rich today. It's all that one can say. Tomorrow, they could be, you know, arraigned for tax evasion or whatever. Um, you you like a weak state when you're robbing banks. When you own banks, you want there to be a strong state to have police to protect you. So I think that is probably the key thing. I think we're already beginning to see it. Again, I'm not talking about the the Rotenbergs and the Chimchenkos of this world, but even with, within the sort of the the working elite, shall we say. But nonetheless, powerful. You know, again, if, if I, I tend to default to kind of military security terms, the majors, the colonels, and the captains, shall we say. Um, you know, these are people who realize they have got something and got something good, but they also realize they are not so stratospherically powerful that they can rely purely on political influence to keep it. And it's harder and harder now to, in a way, get around the deficiencies of Russian law-basedness by simply moving your money and your kids abroad. So actually, there is a generation that has an incentive to see a law-based state emerge precisely to protect and solidify their own ill-gotten gains. And it's not the most uplifting of thoughts, but precisely I put my hope in the ruthless pragmatism of this stratum, the dominant stratum, frankly, of the Russian elite. Now, the history of organized crime, say, in the United States is, of course, often connected to ethnicity, particularly immigrant communities, you know, the Italians, people like this. Um, and in Russia, organized crime has a definite ethnic element. You know, you point out the Georgians and the Chechens play an outsized role in terms of their ethnicity. So what is the ethnic dimensions to organized crime, Russian organized crime? Well, I think, first of all, as with the United States, one should always note this as a sort of strong element of moral panic. Um, the people who look different, the people who talk different, the people who worship different, um, it's always much more tempting to blame them. Um, and, I mean, I remember once talk, talking to a Russian cop who was saying, oh, we have a real problem with, with Chechen organized crime. I said, oh, well, where do you come from? It was in this town in the middle of Siberia that probably had eight, eight Chechens. Um, but, you know, he just saw anyone with a dark skin. That, and that was a point when there was a particular furore, because this was just right after the, the first Chechen war, um, particular furore about Chechens. You know, just saw any, any, anyone with a dark skin and assumed they were Chechens. No, so, I mean, I think what we can say is, firstly, I mean, that we, we need to have that caution. The majority of Russian gangsters are Slavic, even though you'll get all kinds of data to suggest otherwise, because the Interior Ministry also always likes to point the finger. But also, one of the things is that increasingly the old customs, the, the, the tattooing, the big, I mean, crowned as the term goes, to become a Vorva Zakonia and so forth, these are things that actually the, the Slavic gangs are increasingly regarding as anachronistic. Um, you know, you, you, you don't want to have tattoos because you, you're not trying to be an outsider to society because as well as having all kinds of criminal learners, you still want to be invited to the right parties and still want to be able to sort of strip down on, 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 on the beach um, in, in, in the Crimea um, without instantly demonstrating who you are. Right. There's a certain level of couturness exactly, <laughs> developing. Exactly. The, 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 exactly. So, so we now have bourgeois mafias. Um, Whereas, actually, if you look south to the Caucasus, there it's still much more closely tied in with a certain amount of sort of macho and clannish cultural politics. 
Um, and so, you know, every time you, you have these statistics, the overwhelming majority of Vorivazakonia these days in Russia are Georgians. And in part, that's because Georgia, the country, launched a, a major and aggressive campaign precisely to drive them out. And most of them went, went to Russia. But it's also because, actually, it just matters more to them. But even though nowadays, frankly, it's, it, I mean, I, I, I draw the parallel. It's, it's more like having vanity number plates on, on your car. You can just buy it. The days when you actually had to sort of put you know, five, ten, twenty years of hard graft into showing that you're a tough guy and a, and a true vor um, to be crowned. They're, they're, they're long since gone. Um, but more broadly, I think one of the fascinating things is, although one can definitely point to certain sort of ethnic groupings, um, the Chechens and the Georgians being particularly important, as soon as you start looking in detail, even the Chechens, though less so them, um, the ethnic exclusivity very quickly breaks down. Um, and, the, and the fascinating thing is that, and I, I mean, whether it's because this is, after all, a, you know, a multi-ethnic land empire and has been for you know, um, hundreds of years, whether it's the language of Soviet internationalism or whatever, these, these people are strikingly internationalist in their outlook. You know, you, you can be a part of a Chechen gang, even if you're not a Chechen, as long as you can operate pop Chechensky, you know, Chechen style. Um, and, and likewise, if one looks at so-called Russian organized crime, in, in the West, or in the rest of the world, actually, it's often, well, there's three Uzbeks and an Armenian and, and whatever else. Um, they, they, they tend to actually not be at all as mono-ethnic as, let's say, the triads or the Japanese Yakuza. Yes, back in the 1990s, when you actually had these major turf wars rolling, there was particularly a sort of turf war between the Chechens and the Russians in, in Moscow, for example. Um, but, but since then, as I said, the, the, the ethnic dimension, I think, in, in my opinion, has become much, much less important. And I think even within the, the, the gangs sort of dominated by figures from the North and South Caucasus, I think we're, we're seeing a, a generational shift that a lot of them now, even if they use the language of the Vorivazakonia and so forth, they basically are gangster businessmen like everyone else. So... One of the the things you read about in the popular press, in the mainstream press nowadays, is a lot of concern about the internationalization of Russian organized crime, um, the operating in, you know, ex extending the criminal networks outside of Russia into Western countries, the United States, etc. So how did the, what's your assessment of the first of this internationalization? And uh, and how did these Vodri adapt to this global capitalist organized crime structures they loved it no it's it, it's clear that from from the, the vori's perspective and let's be honest russian russian sort of asterisk various other ethnicities as well but russian post-soviet organized crime is the most globalized of all the various sort of shall we say kind of criminal phenomena um they're not the most powerful the, the italians are still the, the most powerful or certainly they with have the highest so say, um, turnover of, of business, but but the Russians are are the most generalised, and I think that comes from from several factors, and one is particularly that they were emerging at a particular moment in the history of global capitalism, not just the end of the Cold War and and, and the bringing down of various barriers to the flow of people and money, um, but but generally the, the shift to an era of finance capital, um, of post-national financial constructs becoming the dominant sort of power 
within the global economy. And it was a time when, in the 1990s, it was a period in which, obviously, you had organised crime from outside, thinking, oh, here's, here's a, a really interesting opportunity for us. Particularly, again, the Italians were about the first, who thought of, of, of Russia and the other post-Soviet states as offering opportunities to them, particularly in terms of laundering money. At the very same time that the Russians were desperate to internationalise. Remember, in the 1990s, there was a sense of a massive uncertainty about the future of Russia. Not just in terms of, you know, skyrocketing inflation and such like, but there were real fears that someday the communists or neo-fascist ultranationalists would come in, or that the country would fall apart or similar. This created a huge incentive for the Russians to internationalise. Um, particularly because if you could access foreign currencies, then you had a hedge against um, the poor, miserable and constantly fluctuating ruble. So the very time when foreign gangs are beginning to look into Russia, Russian gangs are desperately scrambling to, 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 to move, move certain elements of their, of their assets out. And people physically wanting to get out, wanting to travel, wanting to send their kids abroad and all that kind of reason. So they, they very much, at this crucial moment, very aggressively internationalized. Now, some of this was, was, was clumsy attempts at empire building. People saw this in Central, Eastern, Nordic Europe. That didn't work, and that never works, frankly. Um, so instead, they came back as, I mean, I, I called this a shift from conquistadors to merchant adventurers. Um, they, 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 they came out and instead they, they, they turned to the, to the underworlds around the globe and said, what do you need? Do you need drugs? Do you need expertise or whatever? We can provide it. And because of the state of Russia, Russia and say gives them this massive resource base. It is their Costco, it is their warehouse, and especially courtesy of the, of the Constitution, which means you, if you're a Russian citizen, you can't be extradited, and because of the corruptibility of Russian law enforcement, and even more so the Russian political class, also your safe haven. And the very fact that it's, it's you know, they have access to Afghan heroin, a third of Afghan heroin goes through Russia these days, um, people, a high level of skills, you know, everything from, from hackers to killers. You know, basically, they, they could provide this service. So this is, this is in some ways, you know, we talk about global capitalism and we look at the extent to which we see the sort of the whole realm of outsourcing. We see the flow of jobs to where, where it can be done more cheaply. And we see people looking to invest in jurisdictions which have the least controls over how they operate, um, you know, whether it's environmental or legal or whatever else. Well, actually, this is how global crime works, too. That exactly people will want to outsource, people will look to whoever, can, who, who can provide me with this stuff most efficiently and most cheaply? Who can allow me to basically operate my drugs network on a just-in-time basis so I don't have to maintain stockpiles of the drugs which can then be caught by the police or my, or my rivals? All of these things, Russia's presence galvanizes and facilitates um, global criminal actors throughout the world. And this is how the Russians are operating. It's not on the whole that they're operating on the streets in, in, in Germany or in Pennsylvania, but the, the gangs who happen to be there may well, through some extreme or, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, my mind's gone blank. What's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to restart that sentence, if you don't mind. Um, 
it's not that the Russians are operating on the streets of Germany or Pennsylvania. It is rather that one arm's length, two, three, the gangs that are operating on the streets might be laundering their money through Russia, might be buying drugs or, or other services from the Russians. So in this respect, they are the wholesalers, not the retailers. Yeah, and it's interesting that you use, you use the term ser provide services, which goes in line with, again, as you said earlier, looking at the, the way the upper world and the underworld kind of parallel each other in certain ways. And, and here, the, the Russian, Russian organized crime has have configured themselves as service providers in a decentralized global crime economy. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, and, it, and it's fascinating just the extent to which precisely the changes in, in global capitalism, whether it's the race to the bottom in terms of regulation and therefore the flow of money and, and, and other assets to, to wherever it, you know, it can basically be, be freest, um, all the way through to even, even concepts of franchising. I mean, the, the Chechens basically franchise themselves nowadays because they have this formidable brand name. You you can if you're a gang in again in Siberia or whatever pay the local Chechen godfather to be able to use the term I work with the Chechens. So so many and and then people can think well actually in that case I will pay them protection rather than challenging them. So in so many ways absolutely in a way what what happens is criminality adopts and in some ways shapes the forms of global capitalism. And let's be perfectly honest also it it constantly fuels it. Um, you know the, the flow of criminal money of, of you know through various laundries. Ultimately, I mean, where does that where does the dirty Russian money end up moving through? It moves through London. It moves through New York. It moves through Frankfurt. It moves through Dubai. Um, it's been pre-washed maybe in, in in various dodgier jurisdictions on the way, but then it actually fuels the main engines of global capitalism. Yeah, yeah. No, this is another interesting thing that you, that you note at one point, and others have too, is that the reliance. I mean, all of these criminal structures at some point in the in the chain rely on you know Western banking and financial institutions. Well, or one could say Western banking and financial institutions at some point rely on the gangsters. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. I think that's an important uh, reconfiguration of that statement. Um, so. You you mentioned a bit about uh, the, the Russian police and and how they're you know regarding um, criminality and organized crime and and how there's a, there seems to be a, a slow transformation. So how does the Russian state manage and even combat organized crime? Because you know the standard tale is you know there's no state and the very weak state in the 1990s and then Mr. Putin you know gets into the presidency and he you know, reestablishes the so-called, you know, vertical of power, reasserting the state. So how does this this rebuilding of the Russian state as as much as it is uh, reflect upon and, and relate to how the state deals with organized crime? This is an interesting one, and it's a complex issue, which is one of the reasons why, for example, I'm so hostile to, to the labeling of Russia as a, as a mafia state, not just because it's a cheap cliché, but because it carries with it an implication that either the state runs organized crime or that organized crime can dominate the state. Whereas clearly, in fact, what we have is an interaction. The state clearly has massive power. And one of the things that Putin has precisely has done has been to, again, this was happening even before he came to power, but he has certainly, I think, accelerated it, uh, a reconstitution of the state, a reestablishment of the power of the state. However, 
that has not been turned to some kind of wholesale campaign against organized crime, but nor does it mean that the state doesn't deal with organized crime at all. I mean, again, for me, the interesting thing is, I mean, I, I, I can draw parallels with, for example, again, talking to Italian police officers who um, you know, were involved in anti-mafia operations, for example, in the 1970s. Um, and their experience was you, you could still do your job, even though there was massive levels of corruption and protection. But the point is, you couldn't go after the big fish because they were absolutely, you know, you, you could spend a year trying to build a case and then there will be a phone call from someone with a lot you know, more stars on his shoulder board telling you to back off or unless you want to end up you know, directing traffic in Palermo. Um, so you concentrated on small and middle fish. Well, likewise, in, in Russia, I think there is still this position in which there is an awareness that on the whole, the big fishes are still protected. And although sometimes they do get arrested, that's a, essentially a political judgment. And it's usually because they're, they're too destabilizing, they become embarrassing. You know, when you have people like Barsukov Kumarin, who was head of Tambovskaya, sort of this St. Petersburg-based group, when he was arrested in 2009, it was with a sort of a massive overkill. They basically sort of you know, sent commandos from, from Moscow and sort of airlifted him out. And as much as anything else, that was just simply a statement to everyone else. Just remember that the state is the biggest gang in town. Um, but this, this interaction, which in hindsight shouldn't really surprise us, because this is, after all, what Putin was doing in, in St. Petersburg in the 1990s, um, you know, when he was deputy mayor. Part, a key element of his job was to, to be liaison with whoever needed to be liaised with, um, to keep the city running. And in part, that meant Tambovskaya. And, you know, he was able to you know, broker deals. And it wasn't that Tambovskaya was dominant. It wasn't that the state could do whatever it wanted. They each had something that they needed. And therefore, Tambovskaya got a certain amount of latitude, so long as it accepted certain rules of the game. Well, this is actually the model that, 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 that Putin brought in. I mean, it's interesting because when he was first elected in 2000, his, his rhetoric was very tough and law and order. And I know that a lot of people genuinely believed it. I remember talking to one Vaud who, who literally um, slept with a packed suitcase under his, his bed in case he had to hurriedly rush for, for the airport. But he never had to use that suitcase. Um, instead, what it became clear that there was a new social contract being offered, which is essentially that you, know, you, you do nothing to challenge or embarrass the state or the state's agents and representatives. And in return for that, we won't treat you as enemies of the state. The police will still try and catch you, and you'll still bribe your way out of it. You know, the, the game will continue. But the point at which you become a problem for the state is obviously the problem, a point where actually you know, things, things happen in a, in a much more sharply de defined terms, as, as, as Kumar and Barsukov found out. And on the whole, I mean, after the 1990s, which was this period of almost un unconstrained turf wars, as, you know, all of a sudden gangs were struggling over access to resources, access to physical territory and, and so forth, and, you know, almost trying to establish their pecking orders. Well, anyway, by the late 90s, that was, that was going down anyway. Basically, the, the turf lines had been drawn, the pecking orders established. So the gangs were actually, in the main, quite willing to accept this status quo. Um, because they they realized that wars were bad for business, even without the state saying, and now we will prosecute people who try and fight them. So this understanding, Panyatia, you know, sort of emerged. Now, the interesting thing, last point I make on this, is that whereas originally it was essentially negative, these are the things you must not do or else we will come and punish you.
have, I think since 2014, begun to be a little bit more positive. You know, we have begun to see, and only in a very few cases it's more distress, but actually the state being much more willing to basically expect things of, of the gangsters, but also be much more granular. I mean, the fascinating thing is with both the Sochi Winter Olympics and the recent World Cup, you know, we actually had the state, through largely through the police and the Federal Security Service, reaching out to organised crime and saying, we want this to go smoothly. We want everyone who comes to Russia to, have, to end up with a positive experience. Therefore, we are expecting you to make sure that that happens. And it wasn't just a case of, so we don't expect you to, to iron the firm, as the slang is for ripping off foreigners. We also expect you to police all the other potential individuals. You had actually had organized crime being pressed in to police disorganized crime. And, and again, I think because, because of the close interaction between organized crime, state agencies, rich Russians, it's not in their interests to ignore those kind of strictures when the state puts them out. In, in a way, it, it, it makes a lot of sense and, and certainly isn't unique uh, for the Russian state, but other states do this as well, whereas, you know, organized, you can deal with organized crime because it's organized, right? You, it, it, it works according to a certain set of rules. It's, it's not that those rules are always, you know, iron and stiff, but they have a certain method of or working and using them to control um, you know, drug trades to, to standardize it, to, uh, you know, make sure you don't get this unorganized crime to proliferate, I think is somewhat of a, a standard practice, no? Well, absolutely. I mean, one can look, for example, at post-war Japan um, until sort of, again, really sort of post-1991, where actually the sort of the the relationship broke down for a variety of reasons. Um, but yes, the, the sense that, that you can rely on organized crime both as a sort of an adjunct of, of your policing, but also often the, the subtext is it has a political instrument. I mean, whether you're talking about the Japanese or whether you're talking about the mafia in, in Italy, um, you know, their job is also to make sure that troublesome leftists and labor agitators, if they're lucky, just get, get beaten up. If they're unlucky, disappear and end up in a, in a, in, in a roadside grave a few years later. Um, so I think th this is this is perfectly true. I do think, though, that there is a particular factor in Russia, which is, again, because of the chaos of the 1990s and because of the fact that, as it were, organized crime was coming of age at the same time as Russian capitalism and Russian, let's call it democracy, with all its um, limitations, was emerging, was that you, you precisely, I think you do have a much closer symbiosis between these realms. So there is a difference. It is not that one can just say, oh, well, organize, you know, Putin is, is the godfather of the Russian mafia, or that there's no difference between corrupt officials and organized crime and so forth. There is a difference, but they are that much closer. And, and finally, um, you uh, reject and are highly critical of this label, uh, Russia as a mafia state. Nevertheless, your work is mostly focused on looking at organized crime and, of course, the secure Russian security services in order to say something about Russian more generally. So if Russia isn't a mafia state, what does looking at the mafia tell you about Russia? I mean, this for me is one of the sort of the most fascinating elements exactly of, of, of trying to look at it. It's not just simply to look at these 
mobsters and their crimes, however gruesomely fascinating they, they, they often are. But it is precisely, again, we're going back to this, this earlier point of the fact that organized crime tends to occupy the voids left between public perceptions of how society should be structured and organized and states' perceptions or capacities to do it. Um, which has changed from time to time. I mean, in the 1990s, the state was phenomenally incapable. It wasn't just, I mean, in some cases, it also abdicated. You know, it, it, it abdicated responsibility in the privatization process because it felt that just privatization was good, full stop, regardless of whose hands the assets went into. Um, but, but more often than that, it was just it was incapable. Today, you actually have a state which in some areas is is exceedingly interventionist and and rigorous in control and in others other areas is, is is strikingly weak or just disinterested in in applying its own laws so you still have i would say substantial voids the voids change over time and therefore i think by by watching how organized crime morphs and mutates expands and contracts through, you know, well, really a sort of, you know, I look at it over kind of 250 year span. I think it's, it, it's, it's another way of trying to understand actually how the state in reality affects life and what the subjects of the state, and unfortunately even today Russians are still subjects rather than citizens more than anything else, but, you know, how they interact with that state. Because the point is, People will often not say or even know what they really want. States will very rarely say what they're genuinely doing. So what one has to do is see how this operationalizes on the ground. And that is what shows you these mismatches and gaps. That was Mark Galeotti, a senior researcher at the Institute of International Relations in Prague and an expert and prolific author on transnational crime and the Russian security services. He runs the blog In Moscow Shadows and is the author of several books. His new book is The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Block, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time. Bye.